0: All right, who is ready, charged up to talk about episode nine, Rise of the Skywalker? I think it over that, we'll, we'll, we'll turn the rest of the panel into an episode nine discussion. But I'm so excited to be here and, and enjoying this with you, uh, with all of you. And I think I can speak for all of our panelists, to include Alex Damon, who will be here at some point, uh, that, that we're all very excited to dive into this. I don't know what you thought this panel was going to be, but if you're ready to nerd out about a lot of military stuff in the Star Wars universe, sort of an in-canon breakdown and discussion, this is the right place for you. Woo! 5 standing by. <laughs> so before, you know, <laughs> I, I have to say, <laughs> they did OK. <laughs> you know, not bad with the trailer. I want to give you guys a rapid uh, round robin. What'd you think of it? Starting down here with Mark. Uh,
1: yeah, it was it was fine. If <laughs> <laughs> you like
2: Star Wars, I'm sure you'll enjoy somebody. No, it was great. It was amazing. I'm am very excited. So. Yeah, I mean,
3: exciting. Um, you know, you you you'd think after eight of them, it would get a little old, but it, it's still working. <laughs>
4: Yeah. I've always said that no one's ever believed me, but for a bunch of the previous movies, I've, I've known the story ahead of time. And I've always told people that it's not actually as much fun as you would think, because you've got to keep secrets, and then you... And I knew nothing going into this one, so I felt like a little kid out there. I was like... Oh. And then, you know, the title, are you kidding me? And that last moment,
5: are you doubly kidding me? So, <laughs> could it be December already? Uh,
1: I'm down for anything that involves Ian McDermott cackling. <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. It
0: was awesome. <laughs> okay, so let's get started with some quick introductions before we dive right into things. I want to introduce, and this is going to be all out of order because I didn't put the name placards out right, but Mr. Daniel Ward, down here on the end, he is the person behind, behind or, or yeah. one of the forces behind Spacedock on YouTube. How many Spacedock fans are out there? <laughs> okay, John Liang down there on the end, runs the, uh, oh, the Beltway Banthers kind of wrapped up, right? Yeah. Ran the Beltway Banthers podcast, a defense journalist. Beltway yeah. <laughs> podcast. We've got Alex Damon, who is a force ghost. <laughs> and you know, I have to say, Alex and I go back a, a ways, and every year, how many of you have heard of the convention DragonCon down in Atlanta? Right? <laughs> Alex and I are trivia, Star Wars trivia nemesis. We battle like a Joker and Batman. And so I wanted to spring on him this, this trivia challenge, because he's got to defend his Collider trivia belt this year, uh, potentially against his own wife. And so we were gonna build him. You know, it's the 20th anniversary of The Phantom Menace, so we were gonna keep it, uh, you know, s- some, some rapid trivia here. He probably would have gotten all those right. You know, I'm just I know Alex well. I think he would have gotten those warm-up questions. But then we'll crank it up. I was gonna turn up the heat on Alex with some real tough ones. I don't think, I think he might have gotten that. <laughs> this. Alex, if you're watching this live stream because you knew that this moment was coming, <laughs> This is where I would have had you, my moment. So I feel like the joker here that's been denied um, my greatest moment. <laughs> okay, we'll keep on with the introductions. Immediately to my right of the Templin Institute, Mark, how many Template Institute fans do we have out there? stand in 10. And I, I should say, because I, I ragged on Alex a little bit, how many Star Wars Explained fans do we have? In <laughs> Alex, if you haven't met him before, is one of the kindest, nicest Star Wars fans uh, who will go out of his way to do pretty much anything for you, despite running a very big YouTube channel. Except this panel, apparently. <laughs> Except <laughs> this panel. And I, I, advanced, I skipped right past Jason Fry. Uh, how many have read Jason's books? Uh, I joke that if, if you stack the Star Wars books that Jason has written on end, they'd be taller than Chewbacca. And that's... Absolutely the truth. You're a titan. Most recently, uh, if I had this right, The Last Jedi novelization, and I'm sure you're sitting on secrets as we sit here today, as is Alexander, but we won't uh, go too far into that. Alexander Freed, how many have read Battlefront Twilight Squadron? Outstanding <laughs> nice And he's the author of the upcoming Alphabet Squadron. Who's looking forward to that
4: book? <laughs>
0: We are privileged to have these two titans up on stage with us to break into Star Wars. I am Major Thomas Harper. I'm an Army major and a JAG officer by trade. Uh, uh, there you go. Bua <laughs> means anything but now. <laughs> That's uh, a paid vacation. Every about time. You. you stood outside there. You knew that I was going to grill you the trivia, and you, and you delayed us. So That's okay. I write a podcast for the legal geeks. If you if you saw back at the at San Diego Comic Con in 2018, we court-martialed Poe Dameron. Uh, <laughs> it's on YouTube. I, what's that? It's on YouTube. It is on YouTube. Yes. It's guilty. <laughs> uh, I am a major, and I sometimes go by Tom, which makes me an even Bowie song. I have to get promoted, otherwise I'll live with that uh, forever, as my wife has assured me. So let's <laughs> dig into things. I first want to start off just a little, a little flavor, give the audience a flavor for your general interest. Favorite Star Wars battle? Any film, cartoon, anything? Starting down here with you, Mark. Oh God! Well, the
1: correct answer is the Battle of Hoth. Do you want me to go into that? As to why, or do i leave it at that. We're, we're going to get back to the Battle of Hoth right. at the end. Uh, my favorite. Sorry, I'm late, everybody. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite battle
3: is the Battle of Scarif. Yeah, I have to go with Battle of Endor uh, for for whatever faults it may have, like the the space ground and then personal fight model. It's you know it's used movie after movie after that, and it works so well. Yeah, it's hard to beat it. it takes, I'll go with Yavin, because I imagine, in-universe, that's probably the one that people fought about and argued about the most. Like, how did that happen?
5: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with the Battle of Atalon from Star Wars Revlon. Lots of named ships, and individual actions causing a larger
1: Very Very good. We may see a little of Atalon in just a few minutes. John? I'm gonna go with Battle of Scarif as well, just because I'm a, like an original OG generation Star Wars fan. Saw so, saw so when I was eight years old. So watching the space battle in Scarif, over Scarif, you could really tell that the, all the animators who were animating all those X-wings were the second generation who were growing up watching it. They put so much effort into it; it was just beautiful. I
0: mean, you saw the Lego like scaled version of the Battle of, of
1: uh, crate that was built
0: recently. They they went up online on. My, my favorite battle was not great, and then I saw that Lego set, and now it is my favorite battle. <laughs> Alright, this one, I'm not going to turn over to you guys, because there's only one correct answer about this. And he may be a toxic leader, but Darth Vader is the greatest military leader uh, in all of Star Wars, and there's no debate on that.
1: Beers! Not oh, quite. Beers! I think. Okay. Beers! Beers here? Uh,
0: Vader, and then Beers is right up underneath. But let's get to the substance, why you came here, so some, some in-depth analysis, and I want to start with the weapons of galactic warfare, because the stuff that they fight with, the ships, the vehicles, those things, I don't know about any of you, but the first time I saw that Star Destroyer come down in A New Hope, that hooked me. I was absolutely hooked. And so I'm going to start with Starfighters and a little discussion here. And I first want to talk about some starfighter tactics, and to to sort of set things up, because we're going to talk specifically about how the Rebellion uses their starfighters. I want to watch this clip, and just think about in these clips, in these scenes, what you're watching, how they're fighting. To toss the first question to you. The Rebel Alliance doesn't have a lot to work with. How do they use these snub fighters to their tactical advantage?
3: Well, I think a large part of it is that the Empire isn't really all that used to fighting actual starfighters and snub fighters, right? Like, the Empire for 20 years has primarily been a policing function, right? It's been about oppressing a civilian populace and you know, dealing with pirates and that sort of thing. So the rebels coming up in with skilled pilots and better starfighters than the Empire is actually using individually gives them this sort of tactical advantage of, hey, the Empire isn't designed to fight
1: this way. The rebellion only exists to fight this way. And
0: to the panelists generally, uh, what are your your thoughts on, Clearly, this is an asymmetric fight, meaning the Empire has the Grand Imperial fleet. Uh, despite being army, I, I will proudly wear an Imperial Navy shirt. Um, is, is it possible for them to even go toe-to-toe with that? Yeah, I
2: mean, I'm gonna say yeah. I think it's not as asymmetrical as, as you might think, because the Galactic Empire is weird by focusing on quantity over quality. Even when the Rebellion's on member they can still, the odds are always kind of in their favor, the X-Wings and the B-Wings on these things have shields, so, like,
5: one-on-one, the Rebels are a win at a time, right? Isn't that what happens? <laughs> unless, Vader, unless Vader's in the cockpit. Yeah. yeah, it kind of seems like the Empire's not great at sort of realizing their situation and adapting to it. Or at least we sort of had that in Rebels, they kind of went towards the Defender a bit, and then that got that cancelled. And it seems like the Empire insists on sticking to its more police-friendly, uh, kind of Grand Reach style, rather than having any kind of competitive space
0: superiority fighters. Alex, do you think that the Empire uh, puts the proper emphasis on actually defending against the starfighters? I mean, they know that the, the Rebel fleet has these things, they're, they're light on capital ships. I, what's up with the Empire's
2: approach to, to fighting? I mean, yeah, I, I agree, it's all quantity over quality, they focus on the swarms, but I think maybe more thematically the idea is just that the Rebels have something to fight for, and the Imperials don't so much. So. At least thematically in the movies, I think that's what they're going for, is that the Rebellion's going to win, that Hope's going to win. Okay. And talking about the, the Empire, I want you to think about how they fight, and, and let's watch this this clip with the intrepid Captain Kennedy to, to sort of put a flavor to that. Captain Kennedy, why aren't you blocking that puny ship?
1: That puny ship is too small and too close range. We need to scramble out fighters. Five bloody minutes ago. You'll never penetrate our armor. It's not trying to penetrate our armor. Clearing out our surface
0: Cannons. So, I want to talk about the Empire and the First Order and their their uh, starfighter tactics in tandem here. You guys mentioned the, the use of Swarm. So, the Empire has this, this tremendous amount of resources. And Jason, I want to throw this question to you. I, they could do whatever they want with a virtually unlimited budget. They, they seem to, to neglect the quality of starfighters. What are your thoughts on that as, as far as how they implement this weapon for? Yeah, it's, it's an
4: interesting idea. It's kind of, it goes back to Legends and it's still there in new canon as well. Like, on the one hand, like, training a, a pilot is amazingly expensive. That's a big investment. Like, why would you then endanger that investment with a basically an unshielded suicide sled was the, uh, the term <laughs> back in the day. Um, but you know we, what I think has always been fun about that is that you know turning that into kind of a rallying cry for these imperial pilots that they're like we're the best of the best we're still here and you know we can overcome uh, anything which I always thought was a fun uh, strain through it but um, yeah it, but it's also interesting to see over time like um, this this was a lot in the sequel trilogy you know that eventually that that sort of emphasis on brute force tactics goes away. Like in the sequel trilogy, TIE Fighters are shielded because, you know, of course the uh, the, uh, the dimensions of the fight have changed and that has to happen. So I've always found that interesting to kind of push and pull over time and you can see it in with, um, you know, with Kennedy there and reacting
0: to these situations. John, what do you think about the mentality of a TIE Fighter pilot? You're hopping into the cockpit of an unshielded craft with no hyperdrive. What's the mindset? And
1: the only thing I can think of is uh, Ivan Versio from Inferno Squad, it's the book, if you've read the novel, it's, she basically talks all about that and how they have to be in a, in a mindset of, of we're going to take them down now regardless of what happens, no matter what, doesn't matter what kind of shit we have, our, our skills are, we've been trained, we've been gone through an academy that we, a lot of people are weeded out of, so we're, we're going to take them down now because we're the best of the best from there. And I
0: love that they turn, you know, in in modern day, you you have a lot of complaints about the lack of of life support, the lack of protection that these fighters offer. Uh, You look no further than Imperial Japan in World War II to see the devastating effects when you don't protect your pilots. I love that the Imperial pilots just turn it around and say, you know what? Like, we don't need shields. We don't need life support. And you guys are weenies, uh, Rebel Alliance, for wanting all of these, like, creature comforts in your starfighters. We'll get to questions at the end if we have time. But I appreciate it. So, Alex, what do you think? Grand Admiral Thrawn presents sort of a different take on the traditional imperial uh, approach to starfighters, and specifically, uh, you know, what are your thoughts on the, the struggle or his struggle to champion the
2: Tie Defender project? I mean, if you had let me debate, I probably would have tried to make a case for Grand Admiral Thrawn. But yeah, you know, I, I, I love the Tie Defender and his idea of like, look, the rebels us with their starfighters. Why, like? Exactly what you just said. Why? We have the resources. Why don't we value our pilots a little bit? But I guess like the philosophy of the empires, they don't see their pilots as people so much as tools that are expendable. And
0: Daniel, I'm going to ask you. So you're the emperor. You're Emperor Palpatine. You gave the great cackle there at the beginning uh, that was spot on. I think Ian McDermott would be proud. Of you're the emperor. And you've got the choice, as he did, between championing Tarkin's Death Star. Sorry, Krennic. And... <laughs> The TIE Defender Project. What's your thought process? What do you choose?
5: Well, I mean, uh, Thrawn, as it was written in the book, Thrawn uh, has the virtue of being the only person in the empire with hands of sense. The time. And he quite succinctly breaks down why you should not uh, pile your entire economy into a great big, destructible ball, and then and then allow it to be destroyed. So I mean, uh, team was good at a lot of things, but maybe not this. You know, the, the, uh, the Tide Defender, I mean, particularly, like, it had its own built story arc in the new, in the new canon where it kind of came in and it went away. But in Legends, the TIE Defender was a monster. It was just unstoppable. It was the, like the result of the Empire making an X-Wing, basically. And it's like the, having more assets over a larger range to resolve problems across the galaxy instead of having one uh, kind of fear-projecting Death Star. I suspect the Rebel Alliance would not
1: last very long. Yeah, it really reminds me of my actual day job. is I actually cover the Pentagon and Pentagon acquisitions and how they buy the guns, the cannons, the ships that they use. And they spend billions and millions of dollars on that. And I always wondered how they went about doing that in the Empire. Like, how, how they got what the processes were, if they had, like, you know, prime contractors and subcontractors and how that all worked out. Well, you just have to appease the emperor the most
0: <laughs> and then you get whatever you want made. So I think the result here, in, the, in my view, like this is how I sum up the, em- the Empire's approach to starfighter tactics, right? Just Kennedy's like classic scout uh, because they, they've missed such an opportunity. I want to turn down, who is a fan of the capital ships, Mon Cal Cruisers, Star Destroyers, Super Star Destroyers? Woo! There is no better example of that this is a whole. My, my whole image, tell me, capital ship. I don't think you know aircraft like Nimitz class aircraft carrier or battleship. I think Imperial Star Destroyer. And when I think, I, w- I want you to put in your in your mind the ideal image, and I guarantee you, this is what you come up with when you think about a Star Destroyer. Oh shit! Prepare for jump to hyperspace. waited and waited, and that like gave you such relief to see a Star Destroyer finally do its job. (laughs) So, Alexander, we we started with you on Starfighters. The Galactic Empire has a massive fleet of these killers. Why can they not squash the Rebellion at any particular engagement? Before the Devastator arrived there, two Star Destroyers got lost, to a much smaller Rebel fleet. What's the, what's the Empire doing here? Well, again, I think part of it is that the Empire
3: isn't, uh, you know, as effective as a Star Destroyer is against, say, you know, a blockade runner, you know, its effectiveness against uh, Stump Fighters is, is reduced. Uh, but there's also a certain uh, a dispersion problem, right? There are a lot of Star Destroyers in the galaxy, but the Empire is so big that they can't be everywhere. They can't all converge on a given point in the amount of time that it would need to repel a sort of serious planned rebel attack, and the Empire is always going to be dealing with that no matter how many Star Destroyers it builds because it can't put, you know, a hundred around every single planet. And the rebels, their whole goal is going to be to target the weak points. That's,
0: that's what they can do as a, as a guerrilla group.
3: Mark, I'm gonna to toss a question to you.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's a, this mantra when you talk about actual real world military history that, that armies constantly struggle with, fighting the last fight or fighting the last war.
2: Does that factor in at all here with the Empire? Uh, yeah, in a way, but also kinda of not. I think the Empire definitely, you know, thinks they're still fighting the Clone Wars and the enemy has, you know, big armies of droids and then fleets of, of uh, comparable ships, but you know, there really doesn't have that. But at the same time, the Empire has this kind of lack of institutional knowledge. They're not you know, they're not prioritizing the lives of, of their uh, their pilots, their soldiers, and everyone. in the Clone Wars is what we did by the time. Rebellion starts, so... Not rebels. Okay, well, it does seem mm-hmm. like they're kind of like a half of them are fighting the Clone Wars, and then half of them are kind of slowly coming around, or just don't know what they're doing against the rebellion, so it's a weird mix. And I want to fast
0: forward. I know this, this slide has an Imperial start short, but Alex, when you go forward in time, to the First Order, where you have a mix of officers, the carryovers from the Empire. Is the the First Order struggling at all with this same problem?
2: Uh, Yeah, I think so, and I think even more than that, they're struggling with their own leadership. I mean, you can see that between Kennedy and Hux, where Hux kind of appeased Snoke the most, so he got to this point where he's in leadership where he probably doesn't belong, and the the old Imperials are like, no,
0: no one likes this guy. You mean (laughs) merit-based promotions aren't a thing? (laughs) Can I say though, that? surely
5: that's like, I mean Kennedy does a very good growling voice in that scene, but surely everything he's complaining about is his fault. He's commanding that shit. Why didn't it launch its fighters five minutes ago? Who's to blame for that other? Oh I covered yeah.
4: that. All right. um, yeah. yeah. Um I, I, I one thing I think is interesting here is first of all, we're seeing all the victories. We're not seeing the you know the million heroic little rebellions that got snuffed out in the first battle when a Star Spur did everything it should have. Um, uh, the other thing I, I think is, is interesting is, you know, the, the empire is about uh, PR and message in a lot of ways. Like the, you know, the idea of not only do you have this Death Star that you know, if your world is rebelling, it just incinerates it, which makes an excellent, um, gives you an excellent incentive to, to inform on your neighbors who are speaking up. But, you know, for, to then just build another one is just a way of saying, well, this is absolutely hopeless. There's no way to do this. Um, and similarly, I, I, I jumped in, because I wrote about this in the last Jedi Analyzation, because you know, there's sort of asking that, like, why on earth is this? And that you know, Hux is basically, he's basically engineering a televised incineration of what's left of the resistance. And he wants, you know, he wants, for kind of telegetic purposes, capital ships just annihilating a plant he doesn't want all that other stuff getting in that way, that message of overpowering force. And Kennedy is, you know, understandably
0: disgusted by it, it cost him his life. But so I think that's an interesting dimension
4: to consider here is the kind of political messaging and when
0: it can go as you know, really erotic. So instead of st- snitches get stitches, it's snitches get super lasers. <laughs> John, I want to toss you the, the topic, uh, the next topic that's on the board here. Uh, we've seen more and more in the last couple of years the use of special forces or unconventional forces uh, here in the Star Wars universe. Uh, who do you think, uh, what, what special forces unit that you've seen, whether it's Battlefront 2 or the comics or anywhere else, stands out the most as like, the most effective?
1: On the Imperial side, it's Scar Squadron from the comics, um, just because I'm also a big sort of Legends fan and I loved all the final first uh, Rebel Command, oh, I'm sorry, uh, Imperial Commando novels. but um, from on um, the from the rebel side, and I guess are the pathfinders that we saw in the Battle of Scarif. Is these guys are rough. They're tumble. they rough. They're rough guys. They go in, uh, men, mostly, also women as well. They go in before anybody else. Scout the area first, and whether if it's worth attacking, they'll be the ones to tell people. Yeah, go in now or no, don't. It's too heavily defended. So those those would be my choices. Absolutely. So I'm going to move move on,
0: and we're going to talk about everybody's favorite topic, military <laughs> logistics. <laughs> <laughs> and before you, you all laugh, but military logistics is huge in the Star Wars universe. We see it all over the place, even if you're not looking at it. You see it in the films, you see it in the cartoon series. You may not have realized it, but all of Solo, A Star Wars Story, was effectively about military logistics and the problem with uh, uh, access to, to supplies, right? Yeah. So. Alex, my question to you is, the, the First Order here, we don't know a lot. And maybe I should to try to spill some secrets from Alexander and Jason if they know any, but I'll keep this with Alex. They've got this, this massive fleet that we, we finally see uh, fleshed out in The Last Jedi. How are they keeping this, this gargantuan force supply?
2: Who knows what's in the unknown regions. <laughs> uh, I mean, it seems like from bloodline there were dirty senators. Helping them out. I mean, we know there were, I guess, war profiteers in Canto Bite, but I mean, I'd rather hear from them.
0: Because <laughs> 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 it's kind of crazy. So, Alexander, I'll turn to you. It's, it's crazy that the Galactic Empire falls, and then in the span of 30 years, you have a, a effectively a ragtag force uh, that's just been kicked out to the unknown regions, marshal military equipment like this together. Uh, What are your thoughts on what it takes for them, not just to to assemble that force, but to actually be able to go back into the galaxy proper and fight? I mean, it's really about precision, right?
3: Like the First Order is a military organization of the sort that the, you know, the New Republic no longer has, and, you know, if the Empire had a problem of being too dispersed and, you know, not being able to particularly well defend any given sector. You know, the the New Republic is a thousand times worse at that because it is actually sort of fractious and democratic and, you know, it has, you know, a moving capital. It's not something that is designed to fight a war at all, even the wrong war. Um, So, you know, the First Order spent 30 years with no other purpose but to take back the galaxy. Yeah, right. it'd be hard for them not to do gigantic amounts of damage even if they were utterly incompetent.
2: Well, it seems like they have a manpower on them. Because the I mean, we understand it, most of their military comes from people who they've abducted as children and indoctrinated. But one of the benefits of a military dictatorship is it's not hard to get to join the army. You can just say, you know, for a period mandatory service because the first order. Has, ignored one of their greatest strengths, maybe? Well, and one of the things that we don't see
3: the First Order doing a lot of is ground occupations, right? Like, we see the First
1: Order's strength in uh, naval battles, but that
3: is, you you need a lot less manpower. You don't need, you know, 50 billion stormtroopers to occupy thousands of worlds to come in and blow up a bunch bunch of planets from orbit. can the First Order hold the galaxy?
1: That's a really interesting question. Maybe we'll find out about that in the next uh, season of Resistance, of the cartoonism. You see the First Order coming in, in the first season, and basically coming in as protectors, and the next thing you know, they're basically occupying that uh, colossus, so.
0: Yeah, I think, how many folks out there have watched season one of Resistance? It's a great show. Right? If you if you have not given it a chance, it ties in beautifully with the Force Awakens and yeah. the, the Last Jedi, and, and you should absolutely, absolutely give it a chance. But the whole concept of that show is that the centerpiece of it, that the the, uh, the, lo- the main location, if you will, the Colossus, is a fueling platform, and the Resistance or excuse me, the First Order is gunning to get control of this, and it's a microcosm of their larger effort to get their logistics in line so that they can go take over the galaxy. So I want to talk about military leadership, and we couldn't talk about military leadership if we didn't start with the Jedi Order. And uh, you know, I think the thing that stands out here is uh, sort of the suddenness that the, the Jedi came into this role. And so I want to give you a clip to, to sort of encapsulate uh, what's going on here before we start discussing.
2: So if you're a captain and I'm a Jedi, then technically, I outrank you, right? In my book, experience outranks everything.
4: Well, if experience outranks everything, I guess I'd better start getting some. I could have ordered
3: you to take me along. You don't exactly outrank me anymore.
4: In my book, experience outranks everything.
5: <laughs> then I definitely outrank you. May the force be with you. Hmm? Steady. We have to buy as much time for the Trelax as possible.
0: Yes, sir. Okay, so the Jedi get thrust into this, and and one of the things that I find fascinating is that overnight, basically, you have the Battle of Geonosis, and all of a sudden you have the Jedi owners step in. And just to set the stage for our panelists for the discussion, uh, a little explanation of the Jedi rank structure. Because all of a sudden you hear them referred to as generals, Ahsoka is probably, what, 12, 13 in that scene from season one? And she's a general, right? And you've got uh, all these ranks thrown around all the time. So we'll take the 104th Battalion, the, the Dave Filoni's finest wolf pack with Master clone at the top. You've got a Jedi General. He's got Commander Wolf, a commander, and I apologize for, for the folks in the back, it's gonna be a little small to see. He's got a clone commander up under him. That clone commander is gonna have probably about four clone captains, somebody like Rex. That are, are effectively company commanders, and then those company commanders are then in charge of companies of so clones. And I use the numbers here, 144, because that's about the size of a standard army company uh, in the United States Army. Different company. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> and so I use the the real life example of the 82nd Airborne Division out of Fort Bragg, North Carolina, uh, as an example. And you talk about master clone. Uh, Kuhn being a general, so you have a two star general that commands the entire division of soldiers, and then each of these uh, are, are combat brigades infantry, uh, airborne infantry, uh, an aviation brigade with helicopters and whatnot, and they're commanded by colonels, and then if you follow the, the, the line on down, then you get to somebody like me, very low down. And so for the panelists, I want to start with uh, Alex on this one and I skipped right past the bill. But Jedi as combat commanders, good idea, bad idea. What's your thought on this? Uh,
2: This is why I think the Clone Wars were brilliant, for Palpatine to do this, because I don't think the Republic had really any choice. I don't think the generals, or the Jedi, had really much of a choice but to command these clones. Uh, But yeah, I think it goes against everything that they're supposed to stand for, and they're supposed to be peacekeepers. Now they're generals. And by the time Palpatine starts yelling about how they're trying to take over, I think more of the public would be willing to accept that because if they're willing to not be peacekeepers and go against that principle, like, what else are they willing to betray? So no, I, I think it was a mistake, but also just like, what else were they gonna do? Jason, I wanna ask you, I, you
0: think Palpatine had this, this exact move in mind knowing that the, the council would step up to, to lead the fight here? Yeah, absolutely. It's a carefully
4: engineered trap uh, designed to have the Jedi who you know it, it, we see in the prequels are already you know, kind of lost touch with the galaxy to set them up for failure and um, yeah, it's you know, it works perfectly as we see. Um, what, what I love about it though is within that, I mean it, from a storytelling point of view, that's kind of a tricky story to pull off. Like we know the end. Like we know the mom under the chair in the drawing room is gonna go off, and there's nothing you can do about it. But I love that there's storytelling in there that you know adds a lot of um, kind of dimension to that. Like with Plo Koon, I mean, there's a whole episode of the Clone Wars, which is just how much um, Plo Koon cares about his truths and what he does to try to keep them alive. So you know, even within this narrative of a trap and a failure, you get these really, um, really interesting human stories um, between, you know, these kind of accidental and their troops, which
0: is one of the things I love about Colnors. Daniel, was hubris a factor in all of this? I mean, clearly the, the Jedi were not, uh, you know, being controlled in a direct, strict sense. It was their own hubris a factor in all
5: of this? I think the, uh, the sort of genius of Palpatine's plan here is that he doesn't necessarily have to manipulate people with force most of the time. Like, in this case, he's keenly aware that Jedi hypocrisy is increasing. And uh, somebody asked him recently, why didn't, they, uh, why didn't they just kill all of those 200 Jedi when they had them at his mercy in the, in the Geonosis arena in attack the clones? And it's because just destroying the order is gonna make the empire, he needs to vilify the Jedi in the eyes of the people. So he sets them up to be increasingly hypocritical, increasingly corrupt, so that when he eventually says, hey, these guys are the, uh, are the insurgents, we need to take them out, then
0: everyone's ready to, a police station, so I want so to move on to something that is near and dear to every one of our hearts. <laughs> and it's how the rebellion does its rank structure. And, and it, it makes complete and total sense. Mm-hmm. So real life, just very quickly, you've got uh, different branches. You've got the U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, they have different ranks. Uh, the, the Marines in the Air Force will copy, uh, and then there's the Coast
1: Guard. <laughs> <laughs> And the
0: Rebellion has lots of these ranks, right? So we see admirals, we see generals, and don't worry, I've, I've got Hera uh, coming up. Uh, we see uh, Luke, he's a commander at the Battle of Hoth. Depending on what rank structure you're using, Han huh? either very much outranks Luke uh, at Hoth, or he's like an army captain and he's, uh, he's subordinate to him. And then he just jumps to general, magically. (laughs) Um, And then Hera is uh, a commander when she gets promoted, and that's a Navy rank. And then she jumps right over to Army or Air Force and becomes a general. (laughs) And my favorite part is that young Ezra Bridger is effective, he's a lieutenant commander, which is a navy rank, uh, but somehow that's the same rank that I hold in the army, the same pay grade. So I'm happy to know that, that Star Wars
1: treats that pay grade uh, like sufficiently serious
5: that uh, exactly would happen. So, hey, I'm just throw this out. <laughs>
2: can you make any sense of it, or is it like Han at, at the end of the Battle of Endor? Uh, I'm this is the one Requests that I get over and over, and over like, could you just
4: explain command structure? And I just, like, I cannot. <laughs> <laughs> when I uh, when I wrote Warfare, I had a, a co-author, um, wonderful Paul Urquhart, and uh, I was like, guess what, Paul? You get
3: to do this chapter. <laughs> I love the rebel command structure. I love the total chaos of it because it seems totally
1: right for you know, a bunch of terrorist cells that have grown
3: up on these different planets without any contact with one another. You've got the ones that are founded by old Clone Wars veterans who are very much sticking to, like, an actual proper rank structure. And then you've got the people who have never actually met another rebel, you know, had no connection to the Imperial military or the Republic military, and just sort of stand up one day and say, like, I'm going to start a rebel cell on my planet here, which I guess makes me the general here. <laughs> and it, it just seems right that, yes, as the Rebel Alliance forms and all these groups come together, it's not going to make any sense. And ultimately, people people defer to experience. People defer to the people who are actually having accomplishments. Or it's like a,
0: an episode of Oprah, and like you get a rank, and you get a rank. <laughs> and <laughs> and you have a uh, maneuver at the Battle of Tanab, you get a rank. <laughs> <laughs> So I want to flip it on its head and talk about the, the Empire because they have a much more structured, logical, rank structure. And I promised we'd get to the Battle of Babylon. And my my setup here is think about uh, how we talk about merit-based promotions and how imperial officers move up and, and uh, get promoted. I want you to think about that in the context of this scene. That's a command, Move to intercept. But sir. having throne ordered us to maintain our position. Move to intercept. Don't be denied the glory of this kill.
3: Constantine, return to your side coordinates immediately. I've had enough of your games,
2: crap.
0: So we see this sort of persistent power struggle within the Imperial ranks. They may have like ranks that make sense, but there's this power jockeying that constantly happens among Imperial commanders. And at the heart of it all, (laughs) 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 is the world's greatest boss, Emperor Sheev Palpatine. Jason, I want to ask you the, the part of this system, right? They may have logical ranks, but you've got this patronage system is is that sort of the the uh, bomb planted at the center of the empire
4: well it's it's falpatine making himself indispensable like you you know you constantly in a way it, it's sort of it's it's kind of ruthless politics making sure nobody rises too high and pitting people against each other and also in a way that's you know, probably not entirely helpful for running a galaxy it's sort of taking the sith model and applying it to everything else like you know, battle it out and strong survive and the, and the others don't. But, um, you know, it, it, however much it sometimes <coughs> strains credulity a little bit, at least makes your dumb, so <laughs> a great
5: score in
0: Okay, I'm going to skip ahead because I want to talk very briefly. We could do a whole panel on Admiral Holdo and Poe. Um, I'll skip the scene to set up, but you guys all know the confrontation that happens on the bridge. So, what I want to ask, uh, and I'll start uh, down on the end with you, John, uh, Holdo gets accused of, of uh, being a traitor to the resistance. Was Ho right in his criticism? Was he right to do what he did?
1: I can understand why he did it, but at the same time, he's not the commanding officer. He's not the one that has, that has the entire picture. So,
2: as far as I'm concerned,
1: Holdo had her had reasons for why she chose not to share her plans with them. And... At the end, they still were able to at least get somebody down, down to the planet to create. Alex, what, what sort of implications uh, are
0: there? I, you know, did she have good reason to sort of withhold this information from?
2: I mean, I think she did. I think from a um, storytelling standpoint in the movie, I do wish that she had said it a little more clearly just for me. Like, I feel like I just didn't get it. Uh, but from a military standpoint, I think that everything she did was in line. Okay.
0: Now I wanna I wanna keep moving here and we see her at the end and have a clip of the famous we will watch this because it's such an awesome scene. Star Wars scenes, and we have a fantastic Admiral Holdo down here in the first, in the first row. So, in the wake of this, uh, Poe sits here and witnesses this. Uh, Alexander, how does that change Poe from a leadership standpoint?
3: I mean, I think ultimately Poe comes to realize that you know leadership is taking responsibility for your own mistakes, and while well, not, not just her own mistakes, but also the mistakes of people under you, right? Holdo, um, she had a good plan. It didn't entirely work, um, and she decided that she was going to be the one to find a solution to that. Uh, and I think Poe, um, always
1: willing to sort of look for a way out,
3: uh, but hadn't fully grasped yeah, like people, people below you are going to make errors, and part of being a leader is, you know, accepting that and finding solutions to that, even if it
0: goes on you. Mark, what do you think of the actual maneuver there—the decision to use their sole remaining capital ship in the way that she did? Well, I mean, I hope they have more. <laughs> <laughs> that was their
2: biggest asset that I saw, and maybe they got a whole fleet of those sitting around somewhere. But uh, in that case, there was no other option. Um, they really had to do. Uh, I'm surprised it worked, but uh, mm-hmm.
0: it did. I vote for a capital ship named the Holdo in um, mm-hmm. the next movie. We're almost out of time, so we're not going to do QA because I want to do a little bit more discussion, but I want to briefly get into kind of a comparison between Creighton and Hoth. And we'll probably only get to this first topic, but. In a galaxy of adventures, Luke Skywalker leads his squadron against armored Imperial Walkers. Watch that crossfire, boy! That offers two tons of blasters. Use your harpoons and toe cables. And go for the legs. and might be our own- So, Daniel, I'm going to give you the last question of the panel. Uh, did the empire completely mess up and, and, and in spite of things, uh, get victory by not having a little close-air support at all? Um, well, you see, the, the
5: um they blame the fact that they dropped our hyperpays too close for the shield-generated thing. So it's Ozzles' awesome. fault? Uh, it we, um, we see different kinds of shields in Star Wars, so I don't know whether or not it was actually, they were actually being prevented from using uh, TIE fighters in, in close quarters like that. Um, it certainly would have made some difference, but the most important thing, really, was the way Star Wars often portrays blockades. Like, um, they, they escape through the fleet, and they use the iron cannon on one ship, and I guess it's dispersed out. But um, I suppose more, uh, if you were going to use strikecraft, having them intercepting the transports is more important. That's the They're not trying to capture half, it doesn't matter, it's an ice They're trying to stop the fleet from getting off it. And crates, like, uh, it, it barely constitutes a battle. The resistance was so completely screwed from the front uh, like, of the road and it was like five pumped cars against a giant. <laughs> it's, just, it's not a huge amount of tactics that could have changed anything. That
0: is all the time that we have. Thank you guys so much.